Liz Sumner, and this is I Always Wanted To, the podcast where I interview people who are doing things that others long to do. What have you always wanted to try? Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick welcome to new listeners and followers. I'm really glad you're here, and I want to get to know you better. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at lizatlizsumner.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram. If you have time for a five-question survey, I'd really appreciate your answers. You can find it at lizsumner.com survey. And if you like what you hear, please share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And if you're really a fan, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash alwayswanted. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the interview. My guests today are Jimmy Gownley and Michael Cohen. Jimmy is the New York Times bestselling author of Amelia Rules and the Dumbest Idea Ever. His new book, Seven Good Reasons Not to Grow Up is out now from Scholastic. Michael is the co-writer and artist of the comic Strange Attractors and recently completed the four-volume graphic novel Tangled River. Welcome, Jimmy and Michael. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, first of all, what is a graphic novel and how is it different from a comic book? Actually, there's a lot of controversy over that and, of course, a lot of nitpicking because there's no clear answer. There's a lot of consensus at this point that the first graphic novel came out in the late 40s. And it was called It Rhymes With Lust by uh, a cartoonist named Matt Baker. And it was, it was strange because up to that point, comics were very much oriented towards kids. And the stories tended to be fairly short. And I think he was taking a real chance. He did a you know a full length novel, which must have taken him a lot of time because he's a very intricate artist. Uh, but the the term graphic novel didn't even come about till. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jimmy, but it'd be like the mid '70s when um, this cartoonist named Will Eisner published a, a book called A Contract with God and marketed it as a graphic novel. And up to that point, people weren't even sure what that meant. Yeah, I mean, I think that term comes up in like fanzines in the 60s, but but Will Eisner was the one that popularized it, which is funny for a book that actually is four short stories, but he called it a graphic novel. It, you know, I think it's just a word that gets us invited to nicer parties than comic book. <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, the art forms comics, and I'm 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 happy with that. The only thing I would possibly say that's a value these days is a graphic novel. You can kind of say maybe has an author in a way a comic book does not. You know, a comic book is done is a never ending series that's done by a rotating team of people that's always changing, and a graphic novel is a finite work that's done by one person. You know, uh, that's that's yeah. the way I sort of think, I think about it's more it. More of a, mar- a marketing. Yeah, it's definitely more of a marketing term. And uh, the libraries really popularized it because, you know, why were they ordering comic books? Because comic books are considered, mm-hmm. or not considered literature. But suddenly, all, every library had to have a graphic novel section. It was very prestigious. 
tell me about libraries and and how graphic novels work with kids. Are, are kids reading more because of graphic novels? Well, I don't know if they're reading more, but certainly graphic novels have become a huge part of uh, of just, you know, kids reading experiences. Um, you know, when we started Amelia, and Michael was the editor <laughs> when we started in 2001, uh, there were no kids comics that were really graphic novels that were trying something literary or, you know, uh, trying to appeal to a a bookstore market the the moment where the mainstream caught on with that was like three years after amelia started when they retroactively at scholastic decided that bone was a children's graphic novel uh which is funny because you know <laughs> god bless him but jeff thought he was tolstoy and then they're telling him like this is a great kids book but they were right you know because it sold in millions of copies so if that e injured his ego in any way, I'm sure the royalty statements you know, buffed that out for him. But that was the moment when things started really changing, when when mainstream publishers started putting these kids comic books out that had more of a literary sensibility, which had been done now for, you know, had, as Michael said, for decades in, in adult comics. Both of us started out doing what are essentially were graphic novels, but we didn't realize it at the time, which was basically a long series of of comics that stood completely apart from the rest of the you know like the marvel or the dc comic universe so these were self-contained stories that intended to end at some point but they weren't really planned as novels but it, it you know looking back on it that's what we were doing we weren't interested in you know, joining the, the parade of artists who wanted to do superheroes. And neither of us ever finished those first projects. So it, I don't know what you'd call them. I mean, they're not graphic novels because I, I think a graphic novel actually has to be complete before you can call it a graphic novel. That's a great point. I guess you probably do. Yeah, I just considered that a comic story. What's funny that uh, listening to you talk about that is... Um, you know, I was doing a series called Shades of Grey Comics and Stories when Michael was doing Strange Attractors with Mark Sherman. And um, it, mine was essentially a YA, a young adult series, and, and Michael's was science fiction, both of which are huge portions of any mainstream bookstore. But in the, 1993, in comic shops, that was like radical stuff. Nobody was even thinking outside really outside of the mainstream box with the exception of maybe you know things like fanographics and and there were some alternative comics but there was a huge uptick in the 90s that uh with the self-publishing boom that did see a lot more genres i mean obviously these genres had been done before but they came into prominence more than when a greater number of people decided oh we can use this as our own sort of personal outlet for expression yeah and there was no revenue stream either I mean, we all, not everyone, but basically all of us who started self-publishing back in the 90s were basically saying, gee, you know, I would like to publish my comics and I don't expect to make any money. Right. So, and because there was no really revenue stream at that point. It was just, if you can get 2,000 people buying your, your comic book, you could probably break even. And you were also putting it out into a void. There was no internet. I mean, you were literally, it would be... A, a postage stamp sized image and one paragraph in a catalog that stores would have to bet 
to on you to order it. And then it would just go out to these stores and maybe you'd get a handful of letters back. You, you had no idea what was happening. It, you know, now you can put something online and get instant feedback. Um, that was not the case then. So it, it was really, you had to be dedicated and passionate about the art form to even waste your time making one of these things, let alone like Michael and I did, you know, 16 or 20 or whatever it was. So let's talk about web publishing uh, and, and the transition to web publishing and what's available now for creators who want to put something out there. Okay, well, I, I've been doing it. Jimmy's basically, since he's actually had publishers, he's been focusing more on, on getting it out through the normal book channels. No, I decided I wanted to finish a graphic novel, and this was around six years ago. But the thought of, of working in a vacuum for so long with no editor and no feedback, because the idea would be, you know, when, when it's done, then people will see it. And I knew mine was going to be five or six years. Uh, I didn't think I could keep it going without some kind of feedback. And so I decided now there's a lot of sites where you can post your, you know, your weekly or biweekly webcomic. And amazingly enough, people, you know, it's usually a, you know, a fairly small group, but will always respond and start little discussions among themselves. And that kept me going because, you know, it kept me focused on the fact that, well, there's people waiting for the next episode, so I better get this page done. And they were essentially the editors. You know, I could, I could sort of sense that, okay, people are not buying this. They're... Not, I mean, they're basically, I see there's some confusion about what's happening in the comic. I better go back and make it clearer. Uh, anyway, it was just a way to reach people, even though it was a small number, that makes it satisfying. It's like I've got my little crew that's following me. Uh, and then when it's done, then supposedly you can go the other route and look for publisher and get it out there. And Jimmy, you were able to transition to a large mainstream publisher. Tell, tell me about that transition. So, yeah, in 2008, we put Amelia up for auction, and Simon & Schuster was the publisher that ended up winning the auction. And they bought the first four trade paperback, the first four graphic novels <laughs> that, of Amelia that were already published at that point, and, and four new ones. And it was a radical almost it was a 180 in terms of the way I had to produce things and the pressures that were on it it was it was just completely different and um Amelia was originally published just like our other comics as a, as a comic book it was published as 24 page issues that would come out whenever I got the issue done usually like four a year and suddenly now I was working on you know a 190 page canvas that all had to be done at once and for the first time, I was doing multiple drafts of things and having a New York editor looking over my shoulder. Michael was the editor on Amelia, but that was just he and I talking about the thing constantly and then me kind of working those things in and then him saving my butt on a couple occasions when I screwed stuff up. But um, this situation is someone who, some, who feels like they have some sort of... Um, Ownership's not the right word, but some sort of authority over it. And that's uh, that's a shock to the system at, at points. Not that I've ever had to do anything, especially in Amelia. 
uh, that I didn't want to, but it was, it is different from being completely on your own. And I was back to working completely in that void. Only this time the void wasn't a few months long. It was, you know, a year or so long to the point that the, the new book that I have seven good reasons not to grow up that came out from scholastic, you know, I worked on that for like four years. I say I took me three and a half years to draw. It, it took me longer, probably took me close to five years, but I don't want to say that out loud too often because only a crazy person would work on one book in a void for five years. <laughs> so I, I downgrade it to three and a half. <laughs> <laughs> How does one go? I'll direct this to Michael. How do you go from an online comic to hard copies that people can hold in their hands? Well, it's been, I've been doing it. I was very lucky. Uh, I found somebody who was starting a small publishing printing company in London. And uh, basically I was just, it was social media, which, you know, we, we never had anything like that. I mean, uh, someone writing a letter was social media. I think he liked one of the pages I posted on my Facebook page. And then he wrote, said, you know, contact me, I'm interested. And he really wanted to start doing, you know, really large size, high quality hardback books for the European market, which sounded great. So anyway, I've been working with him for the last year or so. Uh, of course, you know, nowadays, it, I mean, it's all dead because of, of COVID. Uh, there's no comic conventions or book fairs or anything. So, yeah, things are going really slow. Uh, the advantage for me is that he's not functioning as an editor. So basically he's accepting whatever I give him, which is real important to me. I'm sure if I was able to get a real, you know, large publisher interested i'd be willing to go back and make some changes but jimmy went through like a really bad period with the fact that editors kept changing and he was following the first editor's suggestions and then the new editor didn't like them and that sounded like a real nightmare which i'd like to avoid so he does get paid which paid is good yeah but that was all specific to that that last book seven good reasons which was a nightmare <laughs> to produce I have to say, Emilio was, even at Simon & Schuster, Emilio was pure joy and fun, and, and, and I didn't have any problems. But this last book, uh, there was some sort of wires crossed between me and the editor at the beginning, and they never got uncrossed, unfortunately. Uh, now it's out and finished, and uh, you know I'm thrilled and I love it, but yowza, <laughs> that, that was a rough time. Jimmy and Michael talk more about how the market has changed and their advice for aspiring graphic novelists after the break. So you you spoke a little about this before, but tell me tell me more about how the market for graphic novels has changed. It's almost completely transformed. I mean, even when you go to a comic book convention, you know, when we would go uh, 20 years ago, Amelia's 20 years old this this year. Even when we were doing stuff in the 90s, the self-publishing and stuff, it was all just men. At, and it wasn't even young men. It was basically middle-aged men would go to comic book conventions, and it was pretty depressing. Now it's completely families. And a lot of that is driven by the Marvel movies, but it completely bleeds over into the comic books and and just that, that whole 
that whole world. So if someone's, you know, grown up used to the form, they're liable to try all kinds of different things as just like, you know, they will in, in any other field, like if it's music or television or, or movies or whatever. Uh, once they're hooked on the medium, they, they try all sorts of different things. And you'll start seeing things now that are huge commercial successes that were impossible to even think of. You know, just off the top of my head, uh, the biggest example in recent years is is Smile by Raina Telgemeier from Scholastic. And, you know, it sold millions of copies. And it's just a, about a girl who got her teeth knocked out in sixth grade, which is not a huge genre in anyone's bookstore. But it hit such a nerve. And it's a it's now a huge success. Things like that were unthinkable when we started Amelia, just unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. This the genre that I see most when I'm just kind of perusing the web, seeing what's out there is is memoirs, um, which did not exist at all. I, I can't think of any examples of an actual memoir where somebody will be writing and drawing about you know how they escaped. Russia or, you know, things about how their grandfather came to America, things like that, or how they had some traumatic experience. Uh, and that's, you almost need, if you want to catch the eye of a lot of these publishers, that's what they're looking for. They're, because like always, they're, they're looking for the last big thing. And if you're not the last big thing, you can tell that their interest is kind of drying up. You know, if it's, if you're doing a comic that doesn't have contemporary issues, they, they well, at least for me, it sounds like that's not what they want. They want something that's current and maybe a little bit controversial. So I want to move on to resources for people who might be considering uh, creating a graphic novel. So would it make sense to start online, build an audience, and then approach a publisher? Is that a, a natural way to go, or are there other uh, other avenues? You know, that changes from minute to minute. I, I would, First off, I would say the first resource someone needs if they're going to start doing this is a good mental health professional, because you <laughs> will be sitting there alone in silence for 10 hours a day in a world that does not exist, that you're trying to make exist with a dip pen, perhaps from, you know, the 16th century. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a, an amount of dedication <laughs> uh, that's insane. So you probably are going to need, need a shrink. The thing about whether, you know, it's, you will hear, one month you'll hear, oh, the first thing you need to do is put it online and make sure it's a success. Then all the publishers will come run it. Then the next thing you'll hear is, oh, the publishers don't want something that was already published online. Um, you know, what I think it, it, uh, it, that that sort of misses the point is that online is it's an end in and of itself these days. And if I was 15 again now, I don't know that I would have the same goal. Oh, I know I wouldn't have had the same goals, right? And when you can actually make a living as a cartoonist on Instagram, and you can do it with complete and total creative freedom, why worry about going anywhere else? Like if you can, if you can make that happen, then that's the dream. And I would, I would focus on that. That sort of thing isn't in my wheelhouse, at, you know, because I'm 49 now, uh, and not looking to, you know, become a, 
<laughs> an Instagram influencer. But I think if, if you're a young person looking to do it and you have, or just a person who's more tech savvy than me, uh, and you have the, the most powerful tool ever in the history of the world at your disposal, yeah, I would use that. You know, Google's more powerful than Scholastic. You know, Scholastic can get your, your book into, um, you know, thousands and thousands of schools across you know the country uh, or across the world and you know google can get you into everybody in the world's pocket <laughs> so uh, so you're saying google would beat scholastic in a fight and that's what you're saying uh, unless money was involved in which case then scholastic would crush google in terms of paying the artists you know okay uh yeah then you have kicks yeah all of the sure. crowdfunding stuff is amazing yeah, there's no way Jimmy and I would have done self-publishing comics, which literally is we, you know, mailed things to the printer and talked right. to the printers who did everything. It wasn't just writing it and someone else taking care of it. You know, you had to write the, the little blurbs for the catalogs. You know, if we just could have done web comics, well, why not? Yeah. Yeah, there was no one else. It's just like a one or two person job. Well, that's one thing I wanted to say. If you... There are people listening to this who think that this is something they might want to do. I think it's very important that it's one person, especially not breaking it into writer and artist, because I think at some point there's going to be tensions just because the workload is so drastically different. I mean, it's, it's 90 to 10 and the amount of work the artist does compared to the writer. And therefore the artist tends to fall behind on deadlines. If you want to be a storyteller, you don't, that's one of the nice things about comics. You don't have to be a real wordsmith. I mean, you can even do comics without any dialogue. But I think focusing on the graphic part is actually more important. I mean, obviously the story's important, but I think creative people are capable of coming up with stories and don't have to rely on, on someone who's taken writing classes. Yeah. And I've never actually collaborated in, in that way like Michael has, but I, you know, I, I do agree with that just as an observer of it. And I think if, if you're dead set on, on being a team and, and, you know, two people working on something together, my only advice would be you both created it. It's 50, 50. It has to be. Because otherwise you're going to end up in, if it is successful, someday you'll end up in a lawsuit. You know, I think the best rule is just blur the line and, and just say it's 50-50. But the reality, like Michael said, is, is true. It's 10 times longer to draw a comic than it is to write it. And the vo visuals are the first things people think of. So, yeah, I, I agree with everything Michael said. It, the, the best thing is to, is to try to go it alone. But if you have to have a partner, make, make sure it's 50-50. Even if you came up with the idea, you know, whatever. I was going to ask, how could writers and artists connect with one another if you are a writer who couldn't draw? But it sounds as though you're kind of advising against that. Well, I, I keep up on all the, the Facebook groups. Um, that's what my Facebook page is. It's just comic groups. And a, a lot of the times... You know, the group is on creating comics, and the post is, 
hey, I'm a writer and I've got an idea. Are there any artists out there? And yeah, there's kids who you know want want their first chance, but basically the, the response will be yeah, how much do you pay, and that's where the whole conversation dies. Because if you're talking about a hundred page, a hundred page book, and you want to pay the artist even fifty a page, that's a lot of money for something that probably <laughs> won't make anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's it's an it's a niche audience. And I believe that if you, you you could do something different and there'll be enough people, if it's good, there'll be enough people who want to follow it. And if you're a good self-promoter, maybe you can make, you know, sell t-shirts or something. And just hope to hit the jackpot and, and get a publisher. But, you know, I've never had luck with that. Even an agent. I mean, Jimmy found an agent years ago and... I don't know if this would have happened without her. No. How did you how did you find her? Well, I don't know. I had some connections that's <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, this is All right. Here, I'll tell this story and this will be the this will be the story that ends all advice shows because <laughs> it can't be replicated. So, and it's true of everybody's story. I was at the I was at Book Expo America and I was exhibiting Amelia and we had published four no three graphic novels at that point and a fourth one was about to come out and I was on a panel and <laughs> that they gave us the questions ahead of time and it was and one of them was what kids comic from the past should be brought back uh, now and I thought of Power Pack by Marvel Comics and I'm sitting up there on this <laughs> on the panel and I was just thinking I don't want to say Power Pack I, it's a Marvel comic and popped into my head, say Zot, out of nowhere. And they said, Jimmy, what comic do you think should be brought back? And I said Zot, which was a comic by Scott McCloud who did Understanding Comics. The place went crazy. Everyone, I'm like, yeah, wasn't Zot great? Yeah, bring back Zot. So the panel was over. I went back to my booth and this woman comes up and says, hey, I just wanted to tell you, I'm really loved your panel and I was thrilled that you mentioned Zot. My name's Judy Hanson. I'm Scott McCloud's agent. And right before your panel, I had a meeting with Harper Collins. Right before you and they were like, mm, Judy, I don't know if we want to do this Zot thing. You know, it doesn't have any heat. No one's talking about it. Whatever. She walked into this panel and I said Zot. And that's why she came to my booth. And then she said, what are you doing? I showed her my books. And she said, if you ever want to sell this to a mainstream publisher, let me know. I can do it. And then like eight or nine months later, I, I agreed. And, and we, that, you know, the rest is infamy. But what I will say is I wrote four entire Amelia Rules graphic novels before that. And I published three of them. And before that, I had done 16 issues of this comic, Shades of Grey, that no one cared about, right? So the reason I was on that panel and able to accidentally say Zot and accidentally get like the best agent in the industry was because I put all that work in ahead of time. And if I didn't, and I was just waiting for that trick, if someone says, oh, if only I had an agent, oh, if only I had a publisher, oh, if I only had money or an editor, none of that would have happened. None of it would have happened. So, you know, I think that the number one thing anyone has to think about when they're doing this is, is two things. It's one, what do I have to say that is completely unique to me that no one else is going to say? 
that I feel passionate about. And two, then sit your ass in the chair and do it. No matter, and it's going to take a long time, but you got to do it. I mean, how many years, Michael, have you been working? Were you working on Tangled River before it was completed? The six. Yeah, I mean that's me a real commitment, about. right? It's a real commitment. Um, but you put that in, and it's it's always it's always worth it. It really is. Yeah, it's always worth it because now I have something that's done, finally. Uh, but it's no golden ticket to anything. Yeah. Well, the thing I would want to say is, you know, quality does not guarantee success at all. You know, uh, you can, you can have, there are things where clearly the craft was at such a bone going back to bone. When that came out, that first issue, it was such, it was at such a higher level of drawing than anybody in the self-publishing field was was doing that it, it just attracted attention to itself immediately but nine times out of ten you know uh, it, whether something or not is a commercial set success has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of it i mean well no i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna name names because i'm published by half these people uh but there are comics out there that sell millions of copies that wow you know <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm glad for you, but jeepers. <laughs> yeah, no, that that can't be the incentive for you to do it. If you want going to do it, it's because no. you want to hold that book in your hand. And, you know, it's an object. Uh, you'll have it the rest of your life. You're proud of it. But you, that that's that should be the goal, I think. And then, yeah, who knows? Maybe something will happen. You know, and like Michael's saying, that you know, have that finished thing that you, that's in your hand or just on the screen or... There is nothing quite like that. You know, I worked in television news for years and I would make an animation or a graphic and it would go on television and it would go out into the Pennsylvania viewership and then it would vanish into the ether forever and ever. And that was it. When I look at if I want to know what I was doing in the, <laughs> the first decade of this century, there's a page for every day almost, you know, in a meal, you could l literally look and go, all oh, right, those are the days of my life. They're just, they're right there on the shelf. That's kind of a magical and borderline Sauron-like thing <laughs> to put so much of yourself into a, <laughs> into a one, one work of art, but it's, it's also an amazingly cool thing to have done. Yeah, it really is. Okay, um, one last question. Or maybe maybe more than one. What are you working on right now? What what's what are you going to spend the next six years on? I'll start with you, Jimmy. Uh, right now, I'm I'm actually I, the other thing I do, and um, along with the the personal work I do is I do a lot of writing for Disney, and I'm doing a three volume Little Mermaid series, which is going to be really fun. Which actually hasn't even been announced yet, so I guess it's being announced here, which is very fun and cool. Uh, and then I'm working on a book um, called, well, it's called, the working title's Monster, but that'll have to change because there's another prominent book that's coming out with a similar title. Um, but it's about, uh, you know, living with depression. And I wanted to do a really, really funny comic book about depression. So if the last book took me, you know, five years, who knows how long this one will take. But I'm determined to avoid uh, the trap I got stuck in last time, so... I'm having, I'm finishing it before I, I look around for publishers to, to publish it. 
And Michael, what are you working on now? When I finished Tangled River in January, I basically knew I, I wasn't going to do anything that long and involved again. It was just too draining. So I was been searching around for some short projects and I'm also kind of interested at this point in trying to uh, collect all the my previous work in some form or other. Uh, so my first book, Strange Attractors, is now being reprinted. So I found a, you know, a small publisher who's doing that. Uh, but there was one, um, I was publishing a comic called Mythography in the, the late 90s, which was an anthology of fantasy stories. And I had a, a story serialized in that. And, you know, we, we reached the point where, it's, you know, sales weren't good enough. We had to cancel. Um, the story just ended and I hadn't given it much thought at all. I read it again. This thing could be finished. And so I decided, well, why don't I do it as a webcomic? Because, you know, that was 30 years ago, and most people had never seen it. So I did a little rewriting and went back and did some redrawing. And my goal is to have that done at the end of the year. It was like, you know, basically, well, I'm going to start adding color. So that makes it a bigger project. But one thing, I, I will never start something that I won't finish again. So I, I I know I could finish this, and you know a year seems reasonable after six years. <laughs> seems like a, a, a skip in the park. So anyway, so that's my current project. It's called the Gathering of Spells. Anything that you want to say in conclusion? I'll start with you, Michael. Well, I I mean your podcast is focused on people who have pursued their dream and giving tips to people who want to pursue the same dream. It sounds like that's what it's about. And, you know, whether they're famous or not, it doesn't matter because they they have good advice and know how to explain things. So I hope we were able to enlighten anybody who is curious about this field, uh, about how they can go about getting into it. The only other thing I would add that's specific to comics is I can't believe the amount of wonderful people I really met through comics. You meet very few people that were just horrible. You know, it seems like when you're an artist or a writer and you're in this field, it felt always felt like people were willing to help each other. People were willing to share information you already had sort of like a, a built-in friendship because you have all the same references from, you know, decades previous. So so that part was great. And I think still remains great. I'm sure that the internet culture has made things harsher like it has with everything else. But I would just say if someone does dream about doing this, then it is worth doing. No matter what the outcome is, financially, no matter what the outcome is commercially, it's worth doing if you have a passion for it, because this is this is an art form that needs as many new voices and as many different voices as possible. And it's the only visual art form that I can think of that you can control completely uh, by yourself, you know, one person, one, a medium anyway, that's storytelling. So if you if you want to do it, just put your butt in the chair and, and get it done because it's worth doing. 
Thank you both. Thank you so much. My thanks to Jimmy Gownley and Michael Cohen. You can find more about them and the projects they're working on in the show notes. I invite everyone to write and tell me what you've always wanted to try. I'm Liz Sumner, reminding you to be bold. And thanks for listening.